0: Well, brothers and sisters, as we come to just the second passage in the book of Ruth, still in the first chapter of Ruth, yet we find already what are surely, in my estimation at least, what are surely the best known verses and words of this book of the Bible. The most well-known words of the book of Ruth are the statement that Ruth makes in reply to Naomi In Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, she said, and we might even say she declared it, she declared, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here's where it becomes, I think, quite familiar. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death, parts me from you. Indeed, it's a a declaration. Uh, And we might say further that it's a declaration of friendship, uh, a declaration of loyalty, And blessed is the woman, blessed is the man who enjoys such friendship in this life. However, what I want to say this evening, what I want to declare with the same force, with uh, equal gravity to that of Ruth's declaration, is that this is not just a declaration of friendship, but a declaration of faith. And it's the same declaration that you and I must make of our faith in Jesus Christ. We speak more often of a confession of faith or our profession of faith in Christ, and such language is certainly right, but our confession or profession of faith in Christ should have the the weight and the impact of a full declaration. Instead of just saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, the passage before us this evening gives us these words to declare to Christ in faith. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from you. Think about now saying this to Christ. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's not just about friendship. It's about faith. Yes, Ruth's declaration is a declaration of friendship. And uh, we can use it as a model for our friendships with one another. But there is one friendship in our lives that must stand apart and stand above all others. And that is our friendship with our Savior, Jesus. And to be a friend of Jesus is is not like any other friendship we have. Uh, To be a friend of Jesus is to rely upon Him... To receive from Him the forgiveness of our sins and the full credit of His righteousness. To be a friend of Christ is to fear Him, even as we love Him, and to love Him even as we fear Him. And so we need to see, and and to see clearly, that Naomi, strikingly, is a type of Christ, in this passage yes she is also an opposite we might say um, and we must not go too easy on Naomi and we won't go too easy on her tonight Uh, yes she is also an opposite but in in other ways she is a type of Christ which is to say she is an early representation of Christ in the pages of scripture she is at this point in story at least she is Ruth's savior think about that even as you might have uh, even as you might save someone you know someone who comes to know Christ by your witness to them well so Ruth's declaration of friendship to Naomi, must be our declaration of faith in Jesus our Savior. So let's make this a first point, the fellowship of grief. That's really where this passage begins. and At the end of the last passage, we, we heard of, of three deaths. Uh, and we read it again uh, this evening. First in verse 3, the death of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Then in verse 5, the deaths of Naomi's two sons. And of course, Naomi's two sons are the husbands of uh, her daughter's-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And so it it should come as no surprise that we begin the next passage. uh, Starting in verse 6 with with the point, the fellowship of... Of grief in verse 9 we read, then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept And this outpouring of emotion was based not just on the deaths, the deaths of these three men, but on the prospect of them now being separated from each other uh, from here on. We said last time as we introduced the book of Ruth, that uh, Ruth is, in, in a way, the book of Ruth is, in a way, a, a good cross-section, an accurate summary of the entire Old Testament. And we ought to pause to note that the theme of grief is uh, perhaps the predominant theme of the entire Old Testament. This is not to say, let's be clear, that there are not some great stories in the Old Testament, stories of God's grace and power, stories of victory and triumph. Surely throughout the Hebrew Scriptures there are many types of Christ, uh, many prophecies of salvation, many records of the power and the grace of God acting on behalf of His people. But already in in the third chapter of Genesis, as we well know, uh, we hear of the fall of mankind into sin. Already in the fourth chapter, we hear of jealousy and murder, of death and of grief. And given the overall tenor and message of the Old Testament, it shouldn't surprise us that the prophet Isaiah characterized the existence of God's people in the Hebrew Scriptures as a matter of darkness, as a matter of death, as a matter even of despair. Isaiah 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Yes, he is prophesying, prophesying the coming of a light. But he didn't just teach us that Christ, as the light of the world, came just to brighten things up a bit. Uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't try to say that the, the coming light, who is Christ, uh, would only correct the dimness of this world. No, the, the world was lost in sin. The people were walking in darkness. Even deep darkness, and on them a light was shown. Part of our problem, I think, is that we we don't we don't even understand the metaphors, yet alone the reality of the metaphors in our day and culture. We um, uh, we don't understand darkness. I don't think we we don't know what it is to be hungry or thirsty or lost or homeless. Some people do, of course, um, and we end up, unfortunately, too often despising them. Uh, we, we don't see ourselves in the poor and the hungry and the homeless of the world. We despise them and separate ourselves from them, both physically and, and, and categorically, even spiritually. But these are the metaphors that, that Scripture uses to teach us, to, to show us to convince us of our sin. We are living in deep darkness in our sin. We are, we are starving and we are dying of thirst without Christ. But if we don't know it, if we don't feel it, then who will care that Jesus is the light of the world, that He is the bread of life, uh, that He is the provider of living water, Oh, but how we fool ourselves about the trouble that we are in apart from Christ. In recent sermons on Genesis, we've uh, worked our way through the book of Genesis, and after Genesis, of course, comes Exodus, where we hear the account of the ten plagues, and uh, the ninth of the of the 10 plagues is the plague of darkness. Do you remember it? Uh, Exodus 10 at verse 21 says, "Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt." Such a striking statement. And when we read that a, a darkness to be felt, we We understand that that's really what we need. We need to to be given to feel the darkness in which sin leaves us, again, apart from Christ. Can you imagine a darkness so dark that you you can feel it? So far as you can imagine a darkness that you can feel, then understand that that's our reality apart from Christ. The problem all too often, it would seem, is that we don't feel it, too many people grope their way through life, saying, no, 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 it's, it's not dark, I, I can see just fine. But all the while, they are walking towards death. At times, they are even rushing through the darkness toward the edge, ready to plunge headlong into death and into hell. I dare say that Naomi and Ruth knew that knew this darkness that we're talking about. They knew it better than we ever have. And theirs was a fellowship of grief. Grief had had sat down hard upon their heads. Uh, their hearts had been filled with grief, like like bread that's been soaking in in water for days. And, and, and their souls, like that bread, had begun to dissolve. Naomi and, and Ruth could not escape the defeat and the despair of death. And it was surely the shared experience of bitter death and a darkness that they could feel. It was this grief that brought them together. But what about Orpah, we might ask? She went through the exact same experience, and yet she was willing to, to go back, to return to her gods and, and to her life of darkness. There's really no accounting for it. Uh, Ruth stayed with Naomi. Ruth bound herself to Naomi with a declaration of friendship, uh, t- uh, a declaration to end all de- declarations of friendship. But uh, but Orpah in the in the same experience went back to the darkness. It's surely an example of the sovereign grace of God. Ruth stayed. Orpah went back, and why we don't know. It's the wrong question. Uh, the right question is, what about me? What about? you have you have you come to settle for the darkness have you have you as we said this morning have you made peace with death i'll give you my own testimony that uh that uh, all too often the only thing keeping me looking to christ is that i don't want to die and if i have to die which i do and so do you uh, if i have to die then i want to die with hope Uh, I, i don't want to think that uh You all might stand at my graveside later this week and watch my body being lowered into a grave. I can't keep that from happening. But I can take Christ at His word. I can take Christ at His word that those who believe in Him, though they die, yet shall they live. And as they live, they will never die. What about you? Have you made peace with death? Is, uh, is death funny? Uh, is death, is, uh, is decaying flesh uh, uh, a matter of your entertainment? We see that all over in our culture today. Uh, are you just figuring to make the most of whatever time that you get before you die? If so, then again, as we said this morning, the devil has you right where he wants you. He, he doesn't have to drag you into the grave. You're willing to walk there by your own power. If only we might feel the darkness of that. Again, there's a bit of over overlap here between this morning and this evening. We'll uh, we'll trust the Holy Spirit to uh, uh, do His work as He would. Uh, but if only we would know our need for Christ, if. If only we would uh, know our need and, and therefore see the great light as this light in Christ has uh, come to shine upon us. And, and so second a second point, the call to unbelief. Uh, I trust you hear the irony in saying the call to unbelief. Usually we talk about the call to faith, not the call to unbelief. But isn't that what we hear from Naomi? I I told you we're not going to go easy on Naomi in this passage. Uh, In verse 8, it says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, now, on one hand we, we might want to say, well what 's wrong with that?" Naomi wanted her daughters in law to marry again to have a, a home and children and a happy life and she even blessed them in a sense. she said, "May the Lord deal kindly with you. Uh, the Lord grant that you find rest but but on the other hand." <laughs> If you think about it, the reality of what Naomi was urging them to do uh, is found in verse 15 when Naomi said to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. These are really, I think, quite breathtaking words. Go back to your pagan way of life. Uh, go get a husband. Set up a house. Be well. And return to worshiping the false gods of your own nation. Why would, why would Naomi say and, and do such a thing as this? On, on one hand, we shouldn't let Naomi off the hook by, by coming up with excuses. She, she was basically issuing the call to unbelief and sending her daughters-in-law back to gross idolatry and false worship. On the other hand, we can certainly note that this is evidence of Naomi's despair. Naomi had despaired of the blessing of God. She, she was beaten. She was broken. She was, to a large degree, without hope. Without hope that she or her daughters-in-law might ever be happy again. I don't know if you've ever found yourself sunk that low in despair. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've never been exactly there. Uh, but surely we can at least begin to sense where Naomi was. It, it it doesn't excuse her, but but it certainly helps us understand her failure. And even more, it gives us opportunity to hear that there is a certain call to unbelief in the Bible. Again, that might sound strange, but but it's the call of despair unto despair. Uh, And we hear this call sounded in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 32, where, where Paul writes, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's the call to unbelief. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If we don't have hope of anything beyond this life, if the dead are not raised, then by all means, we better get going. We better, we better quit wasting our time. Why bother with religion and, and worship? Why bother with any form of spirituality? Why get bogged down by conscience and scruples? The clock is ticking, my friends. And uh, we had better get busy making the most of whatever short time We have on this earth. Earlier in the same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 and following, Paul puts it this way. He writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here too, in a sense, is is the call to unbelief. Here's a warning to those who straddle the fence in the church, to those who show up and go through the motions, but have no true relationship with Christ, no true love for Christ, little more than their name on the church roster. Paul is saying that really we we should feel sorry for those who straddle the fence Because they haven't answered the call to faith, but neither have they answered the call to unbelief. They're losing on two fronts at the same time. Despised by the world, because they gather with the church, and yet pitied by the church, because they have not left the world. No hope of anything more than whatever this life can offer, and yet not even going after what this life can offer, and so on another occasion, it would seem Paul Paul chose to help a, a couple of guys on their way. In a sense, he he knocked them off the fence. He said, "Go back to the world and do your thing, because you're not doing the right thing here." First Timothy one verses nineteen and twenty. Paul writes by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so the call to unbelief is really the matter of turning someone over to Satan. As we've said, it, it's the call of despair unto despair. It's rooted in despair whether we feel that despair or not, but if all you're interested in is a, a few years in this life, if all you want is passing pleasures, then by all means, go and make the most of it. But why would you do that? Why, why indeed would you do that when the promise of resurrection and eternal life is yours for the taking, a promise issued by the man who could raise the dead and the man who backed up his claim by his own resurrection from the grave. Here's one more example of the call to unbelief. It's from the Old Testament in the account of Elijah uh, passing his mantle to Elisha. You may recall the story recorded in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was in despair. He was exhausted. He was demoralized after a lifetime of preaching on the run. And so God told him to go find Elisha, which he did. And Elisha was out plowing in his fields. And Elijah walked up uh, to him in the field and threw his cloak on him uh, to signify that he was his successor. Uh, It was the passing of the baton, as we say. Uh, And then Elisha said to him, uh, Elisha said to Elijah, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah replied, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And I think what Elijah was saying was, Take all the time you need. Kiss your father, kiss your mother, kiss your life goodbye, because what have I done to you? You are, in, you are in for a heap of trouble. It's not going to be easy for you here on out. Of course, Jesus did the same thing. He didn't hide the fact that following him would be painful, even deadly. For his disciples. Count the cost, he said, think it over, think it through. And is that not a sense of the call to unbelief? I think Naomi really meant it. Go back to your pagan life. I've got nothing to offer you. But Jesus didn't say, I've got nothing to offer you, he said, I've got everything to give you i am the resurrection and the life said jesus whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die but count the cost think it over because it won't be easy to be a follower of jesus So what are we left with? We're we're left with the force of faith. Because that's that's what we see and, and hear from Ruth. Go back to your gods, said Naomi, in her despair. And Ruth answered, no, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And can we not hear this as a declaration of faith in Christ Do not urge me to leave you, Jesus, or to return from following you. Jesus, you said, count the cost. I have, and I will not leave you. Can we hear it? For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Lord Jesus, I'm taking up a daily relationship with you. I will follow you. I will stay by your side. Only you must stay by my side. Your people will be my people, Jesus. I will go to church. Not only will I go to church, but I will count my fellow church members as my people because they are your people as you have redeemed them by your blood. Where you die, I will die. Today, Lord Jesus, I come to die at the cross, to die where you died, to die to myself and to live for you. And today I take up my cross, being ever prepared to lay down my life for you. And may the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death, parts me from you. Brothers and sisters, let this be our declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. It's perfect. Yes, it's perfect in a sense, just as a declaration of friendship, but it serves even better as a declaration of our faith in Christ. And yes, our faith in Christ needs to stir us to a declaration. Verse 18 says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said no more. So if you don't like the word force, then substitute determination. The determination of faith. And how determined is your faith? Jesus said in in Luke 16, verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. And why do they force their way in? Why why did the tax collectors and and the prostitutes throng to Jesus? Why would they not be turned away by those who mocked them? Because they could feel the darkness. They could feel it and they recognized in Jesus the light of the world. And they rushed to the light. And they forced their way in. And they did so because they were thirsty. They had drunk their fill of the drink of this world, and they knew that nothing would satisfy them except Jesus, who gives them living water. And they forced their way in because they were so very hungry. And so they had answered the call, We hear in Scripture, taste and see that the Lord is good. God's Word never talks about saving faith as a casual thing. Faith is never about acquiescing to the truth of God's Word. And if you in any way have only said, yeah, whatever, in your response to Christ then you are to be pitied above the person who is still walking in darkness and despair. You, you might as well go and, and at least live in the integrity of your unbelief. You might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow you will die. But again, why would you do that? Why would you count the cost and say, no, it's, it's going to cost me too much to be a Christian? Yes, the cost is great. But the gain is forever greater. The cost is great. Jesus even said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call of Christ is to lose your life. Not just your Sunday mornings, but your life. The cost is great, but what you have to gain is hope even in the day of death. The advantage in our day is that uh, it would seem God is beginning to turn off the false lights of our world so that by His sovereign grace we may feel the darkness, so that we may recognize Naomi's grief As our grief, so that we will take up Ruth's declaration of faith as our declaration of faith, so that we will be ready to force our way to Jesus and into his kingdom of light. And so let us repent and believe in Christ, not as we acquiesce to the truth, not as we just say, okay but as we lay hold of Christ and live each day with the force of faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Sovereign God of salvation, grant us all and grant us each the force of true faith. Give us to feel the darkness of sin Move us to claim Christ and to force our way into the kingdom of heaven. Keep us from a pitiable acquiescence and from the despair of unbelief. Grant that we would repent and believe and rejoice in Jesus Christ our Savior and commit ourselves each and every day to living for Him. In His name we pray. Amen.